rests for you, that it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but settle the matter today. Thus says the Lord. Thanks, Jackie. All right, guys, today we're going to be continuing in the book of Ruth. It's four chapters long. Today we're at the third chapter and therefore our third sermon. We're trying to do one chapter uh, per Sunday. So quick recap. Okay, So far we've seen through Ruth chapter 1 that a tragedy fell upon a family. If you remember, uh, there, was, uh, there was Naomi, there was Elimelech, and their two sons. That family left Bethlehem because of a famine. They went to a place called Moab. And there, two of Naomi's sons married to two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then Elimelech, the husband, and the two sons of Naomi, they died. And Naomi was left with her two uh, daughter-in-laws, or ex-daughter-in-laws, technically, because their husbands are dead. So what happened after that is uh, uh, Naomi, hearing that back in Bethlehem the famine ended, So she wanted to go back from Moab to Bethlehem, and then Ruth and Orpah wanted to follow her. But she said, no, no, don't follow me. She's trying to be selfless. Go back to Moab, your hometown, because in Israel, you're going to be a foreigner. And foreigners don't have as many rights compared to if you were to be living in your own home country. So go back to Moab. Stay in Moab. Orpah went back to Moab, but Ruth followed Naomi and said, I don't care if I have less rights. I don't care whatever befalls me. I'm going to commit myself selflessly to protect and provide and guide you. And then after that, chapter 2, we see Ruth and Naomi ending back in uh, Bethlehem. And Ruth, wanting to provide and protect Naomi, started to glean for food. To glean is to 
go to a farm, a grain field, and walk behind the reapers who would take the grain and you know, put it to store. And every now and then, the, the reapers would have grain accidentally fall to the ground. To glean is to pick up those leftover grain and take it for yourself. That's a law instituted by God in Leviticus chapter 19 and in other places. Sorry, Leviticus chapter 25 and in other places in the Bible. So God said, widows, sojourners, they're allowed to glean. You let them glean. And all of a sudden, Ruth, as she was gleaning, ended up in Boaz's grain field. That's where she met Boaz, the person we just read in chapter 3. And Boaz, in his kindness, uh, gave Ruth all this all this grain, more than what she can probably have got just by gleaning. And Ruth ended up going back home to Naomi with half a month's worth of grain. So if chapter 1 talks about selflessness in the midst of tragedy, of Naomi saying, no, go back, don't worry about me, and Ruth saying, no, I don't care about me, I want to protect you. You see that selflessness in the midst of tragedy? Chapter 2 is about selflessness in the midst of plenty. And now... We go to chapter 3, you see the same selflessness move through the fabric, not of primarily tragedy or plenty, but through the fabric of romance, where Ruth proposed to Boaz. You heard me, right? Our lady Ruth proposed to our man Boaz. Huh. An act that the Lord used to move forward his redemptive story and ended up saving his people. How does the Lord use this story to save his people? Remember, if you skip to chapter 4 of Ruth, you see that the marriage between Ruth and Boaz ended up in uh, having a great-grandchild named David. Who is David? He then became the savior and the king of God's people of Israel from the Palestines, from Goliath and all that. But that's not the main point of this book. Because if you trace David's lineage even further, who do you end up getting to? Jesus Christ. Matthew 1.1, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one who will reign over his father's throne, David's throne, and be God's true savior and be God's true king. So through Ruth and Boaz's marriage, God saved his people and brought about Jesus Christ, the true king and savior of his people. So now... With that redemptive story in mind, let's enter into our text. There's three points. How God used a selfless prayer, how God used a selfless romance, and how God makes us selfless people. How God used a selfless prayer, how God used a selfless romance, and how God makes us selfless people. Pray with me, and then we'll jump into our text. Father, Lord, as we study this book, that is often, um, at least by me, uh, forgotten and uh, hidden and unseen in the midst of all the other bigger books in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We pray that you keep our hearts and our eyes attentive to the small details here and how you have used every single meticulous point to bring about your um, salvific plan for your people and bring about Christ, the Savior and King, that has died and redeemed us and saved us from our true enemy, sin, and our own unrighteousness. Thank you, Father, for this, and I pray that you speak into our hearts and affect our minds and also affect our hands and feet as your truths uh, uh, infect us in that way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one, how God used a selfless prayer. 
So after Ruth gleaned and got grain for Boaz, uh, you see the end of chapter 2 ending with the harvest season finally ended. And now, with that ending of the harvest season, we come to chapter 3. And in the beginning of chapter 3, we see Naomi's grand plan of bringing Ruth and Boaz together. Let's read verses 1 to 5. I'll just read it out. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. A theme we're going to talk about this whole sermon. It may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash for and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. Now, at face value, all this sounds a bit scandalous, doesn't it? I don't know, Naomi, that doesn't sound too kosher. <laughs> to go down there and make yourself available in that way. But I want to argue, although it sounds like Naomi is telling Ruth to make herself available in a sensual way to Boaz, that's not Naomi's point. Naomi's not telling Ruth to lure Boaz into a sensual situation, but actually Naomi's telling Ruth to propose to Boaz. We see that first in verse 3. Three things Naomi told Ruth to do. Wash, therefore, shower, and anoint yourself, put some perfume on, and put on your cloak, get dressed up nice. These are the three rituals you see in when a bride gets ready for their wedding in the Old Testament. This is a marital proposal. The exact rituals of a bride getting ready. But, but that's not all. The theme of marital proposal is, is clear uh, rather than a premarital sensual relationship. It, it's, it's about a proposal. It's about finding a husband. It's clear because if you look at Naomi's words in verse 1, I think I have it on the PowerPoint. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? I'm sorry, that, that's verse 1 of chapter 3. Um, and then you see uh, 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 in verse one, ver chapter 1, verse 8 to 9, Naomi did a prayer to Ruth. This is the prayer. I think it's on there. Yeah. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find, what's the word there? Rest, which is the same word we see in verse 1. Each of you in the house of her husband. So remember, Ruth was saying, I want to come and follow you to Bethlehem so I can guide you and provide for you. And Naomi's saying, no, no, don't worry about me. Because if you come with me to Bethlehem, you're going to miss out on all the opportunities of finding a husband back in your hometown. I want you to find rest, which she equated with finding a husband. Verse 1, what did Naomi say to Ruth? Do this so that it may be well with you and so that you may find rest. So Naomi was not encouraging Ruth to lure uh, uh, Boaz into some sensual relationship, she was saying, find a husband. Go. Get married. Propose to him. And think about it. It makes sense too because Naomi, I mean Ruth would have been a widowed foreigner in Israel. That's not a good fate to be in. You want her to have somebody to protect uh, and, and to guide her. Now, if you think about this for a second, the prayer that Naomi didn't, in, did in chapter 1 she went out to fulfill herself in chapter 3. She prayed for what for Ruth in chapter 1? For a husband, right? And in chapter 3, she's doing what? She's making all these plans so that Ruth can find a husband. 
Now immediately, we're confronted with a question. I thought prayer means that we pray to God and then we passively wait for it to happen. That, that's what prayer is, right? We pray, then we just wait for God to make it happen. And here we see the answer, no. Here we see God fulfilling Naomi's prayer for Ruth in chapter 1 through what? Through Naomi's plans and actions in chapter 3. And, and at first you think, well, isn't that a lack of faith? That you pray for something and then you go about and do it. Does that not mean that you have lack of faith in God and you're trying to do it on your own? Um, uh, but then you see that this whole thing was not written by the author with a tone of disapproval. This wasn't like a rebuke. I can't believe Naomi did this. This was encouraged. And we see God using Naomi's actions in chapter 3 verses 1 to 5 of encouraging Ruth to then go to Boaz as something that he used to fulfill his redemptive story that led to David, that led to Jesus. So this, it wasn't a rebuke, but it redefines what faith is for us, how faith works. We often think faith is this, ask God for something, then passively wait for it, right? But here, it's redefining faith. You don't ask for God and passively wait for it. You pray to God, then you actively set out to accomplish that prayer. Naomi said, I pray the Lord gives you rest, gives you husband. And in chapter 3, Naomi said, here's the steps you need to do to make that happen. So prayer is not praying to God and just passively waiting. It's doing it. But then this leads to the second question. How do I know what I pray for and pursue is God's will? For example, if I want to cheat on a test and then I pray to God, Lord, I pray that I don't get caught when I cheat in this test. And then, oh, Ruth chapter 3 says that I must plan my way so that I don't get caught in this test that I'm cheating in because I prayed for it. And then at the end, you don't get caught because you've made a really good plan. And then you say, the Lord's will be done. <laughs> I'm not caught. It must be from the Lord. No, you can't just do that. What is also emphasized in this text is the kind of prayer prescribed here. The kinds of prayer prescribed by the Lord in which you should pray and then actively seek out is a prayer that centers upon the well-being of others. Look at Naomi's motive here. Should I not seek rest for you, Ruth, that it may be well with you, Ruth? A quick note, it doesn't mean that you can't pray for your own needs. What it's saying is the Father is pleased to hear you praying for other people a selfless prayer, and then act on it. Naomi loved Ruth. Naomi wanted Ruth to find a husband. Naomi selflessly wished for her well-being. So she prayed for it, and then she went out to do whatever she can in her power to make it happen. Just look at how much detail and thought and effort Naomi put into her actions in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. She was intentional. She told Ruth every single detailed step of the way. Do this, do this, do that, then do this, then wait for this, then do this. She was strategic. Look at when Naomi told Ruth to approach Boaz. Verse 3 says, after he finished eating and drinking. Why? Because verse 7 says, he'll be in the best mood that he's in. Verse 7, and when Boaz has eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. Men, the same everywhere. <laughs> do it when he's happiest, when he's full. And she's also rational and careful. This wasn't an ignorant 
uncalculated move. Yeah, it was risky. Yeah, Boaz might could have taken advantage of Ruth, perhaps. But Naomi knew this is very unlikely. Why? Because the integrity and the character that Boaz has shown all the way throughout chapter 2. This is not that kind of guy. It doesn't make, I don't think he'll do that. It's most rational and careful. So pray about it selflessly for the well-being of others. Then be intentional, strategic, rational, and careful about it and go do it. And God used Naomi's selfless prayer in chapter 1 and her selfless act in chapter 3 to follow up that prayer, not only to bring Ruth and Boaz together, which then brought about David, but also went all the way to making them the ancestors of Jesus Christ. This is how, what God instructs us to be in this chapter, people who represent him by taking our eyes off ourself unto others and pray for their well-being. Then act on it. Jesus shows the same pattern. If you look at Luke chapter 10, verse 2 to 3, And he said to them, his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Hmm. Pray. Verse 3, Go your way, behold. Wait, what? I'm supposed to go? You told me to pray, now you're telling me to go? Yes, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So do you pray for the harvest or do you go and share the gospel to the harvest? Which one is it? Yes. Pray selflessly for the well-being of others, then go. Do it. Why? Because human instrument is God's primary plan and will in accomplishing his sovereign will. Human instrument, the obedience of his children, is God's way of accomplishing his will. Now, this is very convicting for me. One, if, if my prayers do really, are really the mirror of the loves of my heart, what I pray for is what I want the most. How often do I really pray for the well-being of others in comparison to praying for myself? That's really convicting to me. I pray more for my needs and what I want God to do for me instead of for the well-being of others. And it's not wrong to do that, but God is saying, look at the pattern of your prayers. What does that reveal about your heart? What does that reveal about what you want and who you are? Think about how Jesus instructed his disciples to pray. We just did it, the Lord's Prayer, found in Matthew chapter 6. Pray then like this, Jesus said. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's all about God's glory. Pray about God's glory. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Desire for his will to be done on earth because that is what heaven looks like. His will is being done there. Pray for that. Give us this day our daily bread, not our yearly caviar. Our daily bread, whatever we need to then accomplish the doing of your will and your kingdom come. Forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Pray for your relationship with others. Lead us not to temptation because that is best for you and how you interact with others. Is that how we pattern our prayers? Or is it, God, give me this job. God, give me this career. God, give me this boy, this girl. Again, not demonizing those things. We have needs. But the way we pray is the best mirror into our hearts. Also, second, it's convicting that if I do pray for the well-being of others, do I then actually move forward to accomplish it? Or do I pray for the well-being of others, and then when it actually comes to accomplishing that prayer, I could care less. Lord, I pray that you bring comfort to this woman in her time of grief. 
Amen. All right. <laughs> Next prayer. Is that how we pray? The Lord is saying, pray for it. Great. Then comfort her in her grief. Lord, I pray that the community in Covenant City Church would grow and we would care more and love and be vulnerable with each other. Amen. Go, do that. Cultivate that. You are the agent God wants to use. Or, God, I, I've been fighting this sin my whole life and I really want to grow in holiness, but I, I just really can't find myself uh, winning against this pet sin that I've had for years of my life. Man, it's hard, and thank you for the gospel. Amen. Go. Be ambitious. Be intentional. Be strategic. Think about how are the ways I can grow in this. Help that woman that's grieving. Build a community in CCC. So how do we grow? Is by becoming selfless people. How, how do we grow? How can we become these selfless people that God has prescribed us to be in Ruth chapter 3 and also live out our lives based on the prayers we just prayed? Well, start by praying for the well-being of others. Put that in your prayers. And then be ambitious and intentional, as Ruth was here, into making those prayers realized by your actions. That's how we grow in selflessness. That's the kind of prayers and actions God uses to move his redemptive story forward. Now, how can we tell that we've grown in this? How can we tell that we've truly become the kind of selfless person God wills us to be here in Ruth chapter 3? Well, if you ask me, there's probably a lot of ways to measure how helpless you are and, and, and look at your prayers and actions in different areas of your life. But I say, and I think it's also hinted here by the author, the best mirror to see of how selfless you truly are is the way you act and pray in your romantic life. The best mirror into who you truly are is the prayers you pray for and the actions you do in your romantic life and how you navigate through romances and relationships. If you want to know how mature you are in Christ, how selfless you truly are, ask yourself this question. Are the prayers I pray and the way I live in regards to my romantic life, that's one of them, patterned after the selflessness and the faithfulness seen here in Ruth chapter 3? Whether in marriage or whether you're engaged or you're dating somebody or whether you're single and in the future you're praying for a future romance, how do you pray for them? How do you act in the current relationship you're in? What's the focus there? We can appear very selfless and faithful and mature and steady at work. We can appear all those things amongst friends. But the way we act in our romantic life, I'd say, is one of the best measuring tools to the actual level of your selflessness, to the actual level of your faithfulness, to the actual level of your maturity. If you really want to know who I am, don't judge me by what you see here up front. Ask my wife because I'm a lot less mature there than I am up here. Just being honest. This is a lie. <laughs> Talk to my wife. It's not completely. Talk to my wife. <laughs> I'm not totally faking it. <laughs> but there are just things in my romantic relationship that's, that just brings out the worst of me. It's the best of me, but also the worst of me. That's how I know who I am. Because our romantic life is so close to our heart, isn't it? It's probably the most sensitive vein in our life, isn't it? Usually find ourselves most reactive and emotive and find ourselves 
hardest to find self-control when it comes to our romances. It's true for me, not true for many people. So let's, let's, move that, uh, let's move the second point here, and we see how bringing a romantic life under the rule of God is also something God used to bring his redemptive story forward. Point number two, how God used a selfless romance. Now, this part of the story is very interesting because everything about Ruth and Boaz's romantic relationship, from Ruth's proposal in verse 9 to Boaz's response in verse 10, all of it shows utter selflessness for others. Let's continue the story. So we see Ruth going down to the threshing floor. By the way, the, the threshing floor is where Boaz, in verse 2, was winnowing barley. So at the end of the harvest season, remember chapter 2, harvest season ended. At the end of the harvest season, you collect all your grain, and you'll have this big fork, farmer's fork. And what you do is to winnow is to kind of like stick your fork into the grain, the, the harvest you have, and you, you, you throw it up in the air. And because the grain is heavier than the skin around it, Wind comes and blows the skin away, but the grain will fall back down. And that's how you separate the, the chaff from the wheat, from the actual grain. So you just do that over and over and over again. You do that at a place called the threshing floor. So Boaz, at the end of the harvest season, was doing this. Um, um, and verse 7, after Boaz was done threshing the wheat, he ate and drunk. Some of us, some would argue that that's alcohol. That's debatable. I personally doubt it given the character of Boaz in chapter 2 and his representation here as the ideal Israelite man. I, I doubt it, it leans to that. Either way, after he ate and drank, his heart was merry. Then he fell asleep. Then Ruth came and uncovered his feet. Just his feet, guys. Okay? Just want to make that clear. His feet, like toes and like foot. <laughs> That's it. Verse 8 to 9. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. Remember, you need to winnow at a time when there's a lot of wind. Guess what happens when you're sleeping in a cover and your feet gets uncovered? You get cold because all the wind. You wake up and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Again, this is an essential gesture. A gesture of laying at somebody's feet is the representation of a weaker vassal or a weaker servant at the mercy of a stronger suzerain, a stronger ruler. That, that's what he's doing here. He's laying at his, I'm at your mercy, Ruth is saying. Boaz said, in verse 9, Who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is where biblical application must not be taken out of context. Ladies, I do not encourage you to sneak in your boyfriend's house in the middle of the night, <laughs> wake him up, and say, marry me already. As tempting as that may be. <laughs> the author's point here isn't to say that. The author is trying to show the selflessness of Ruth even in the midst of her romantic life. Where do we see that? Ruth, Ruth's word choice in verse 9 is significant. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Her words here show us, give us reason that her motivation of proposing to Boaz was not ultimately for herself, but it was for Naomi. Where do we get that? First, Ruth said, spread your wings over me, your servant, for you are a redeemer. Okay, remember, what is a redeemer? In chapter 2, we talked about a redeemer is a title we give to somebody who belonged in the same clan as somebody else. And if, say, I'm in the same clan as Gray, and I lose my, something bad happens to me, if Gray is my redeemer, he needs to redeem me from that tragedy. That's his responsibility as being a part of the same clan as me. And if you look at chapter 2, 
Who is, who is in the same clan as Boaz? Elimelech. So who is Boaz responsible to redeem by, by, by family tie here? Not Ruth. Naomi. Naomi was Elimelech's wife, right? Ruth was a foreigner. Ruth was a Moabite. She had no kinship relationship with Boaz. She does not have the authority to say, do this because you're a redeemer for me. When she says, do this for your redeemer, she's meaning, not redeem me. You have no obligation to do that. Redeem Naomi, who you are obligated to redeem. Ruth said, marry me, Boaz, and the argument is because you're a redeemer. Now, what is Boaz meant to redeem Naomi from? What troubles did Naomi experience in chapter 1? What was she robbed for? And what can Boaz provide Naomi from in which she was robbed from in chapter 1? It's descendants. Remember, who did she lose in chapter 1? Both her sons. And therefore, she will have no descendants and no grandchildren, no great-grandchildren. Ruth is saying, Boaz, marry me, not because you have obligation to redeem me, but because you have obligation to redeem Naomi. Give her descendants. Now, some of us might think, it seems like a stretch to, to claim to know Ruth's motivation just from the, this word in verse 9. But then look at verse 10. Look at Boaz's response to Ruth. It confirms it. Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor and rich. You have made this act of kindness greater than the first. What was Ruth's first act of kindness in chapter 1? Remember, going back with Naomi to Bethlehem to make sure she's protected and guided for. I'm going to sacrifice what I have in, in Moab, the possibilities of getting married there, the status I have as a citizen there. Let that go. I'm going to follow you. And Boaz is saying, the second act of kindness is greater than the first. Referring to the second act of kindness, this is an act of kindness you're doing. You, you, you were kind to, to Naomi in chapter 1. Now you're even more kind. Because you're not only giving up your status as a, as, as a citizen and you're risking everything, but you're even giving up your romantic life for her. <laughs> That's bizarre. Ruth's act of kindness here is greater than her first one in chapter 1. She's committed to protect Naomi beyond just living and with her and providing her, but also giving her descendants. You had options, Boaz said in verse 10. You've not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. First option, young and poor. She could have made a romantic decision primarily based on the satisfaction of emotional individual desires, her own individual emotional desires. She could have done that. Young and poor, the imagery there is your classic love movie where you have, um, you have a woman who has options to marry a lot of rich people, but then she chose the young and the poor. And she ran away into the sunset with the young and the poor who her parents disapproved. You see what I'm saying? The feel there is like this romantic. You could have, you could have went the romantic individual route and like just satisfied your own emotional individual passions. Or you could have gone through young and uh, rich, that was talking about money. Yes, Boaz had money. Yes, Boaz had resources. But there are other um, young, and apparently Boaz thought there are other young and, and, and resourceful people you could have chosen above me. But instead he chose me specifically to redeem Naomi, to give her descendants. And this weird, because Boaz here calls with daughter, that puts her in a pretty high old, he's old. <laughs> but you chose me for Naomi. This act of kindness is much greater than what you did in chapter 1. 
Now, I know all this sounds really weird and maybe uncomfortable to our ears. Why? Because it speaks against the two worldviews that we here in this room cherish so much. One, uh, the worldview of emotional individualism, which is often prominent in the West. And two, the worldview of harsh familialism, which is often prominent in the East. Let's, let's talk about that real quick. Some may think I'm saying you shouldn't marry because of love. You shouldn't marry because of emotional attachment. No, that, that's not what I'm saying. You should love the person you're marrying. And emotional attachment and chemistry is very important. I love my wife when I married her. I still love her now. There's chemistry. There's emotional attachment there. But what individual emotionalism says, it says your primary authority should be your emotions. That's your primary authority. That's emotional individualism, i.e., follow your heart. When it comes to romances, do what you want. Your emotions, what you want to do, that's your final authority. That's who gets to say. But yet, you see here God using, even approving, Ruth's act of selfless, um, selflessly arranging her love life, not based on satiating an emotional drive, running away or the sunset, but to bless Naomi. Again, I'm not saying you can't make decisions based on your emotions, but if you make your emotions the final authority, of your romantic life, you've fallen into emotional individualism. And that's dangerous. Have you ever made a decision based on it's just something you really, really want, then you really regretted it? I have, plenty of times. It's dangerous to make your emotional, individualistic passions to be the ultimate authority of your life. Our emotions may be good friends, but they're terrible gods. However, the second also uh, I want to address here also speaks against harsh familialism. If individualism says your primary authority is what you want, harsh familialism says the final authority is protecting family image. That's, that's the ultimate primary authority. That's the all and end all. And I say this because I'm worried when we think the application is we're supposed to be like Ruth and we're just like robotically numb ourselves and treat our parents' voice as ultimate authority when it comes to our romantic life. Not exactly. Now, don't get me wrong, parents. I'm a parent. I have a daughter. And selfishly, I would want nothing less than my daughter treating my words as God's words <laughs> when it comes to her dating life. <laughs> Yes, of course I would want that. <laughs> but, but then we see this is not the motivation of why Naomi did this for Ruth. Her, her, Naomi's motivation wasn't to protect social image. It was for Ruth's well-being. It was for Ruth's rest, not for her own selfish needs to protect social image. Naomi observed this guy, Boaz, all throughout chapter 2. He's been kind and generous to Ruth, allowed him to glean remember, in his, in his field, been protective over Ruth. He said that I'll protect you from all the male servants I have. Seemed to find interest in Ruth, invited her to lunch, remember? Works well with Ruth. Apparently, this relationship was ongoing till the end of harvest season, so it wasn't like a short thing. It was like they actually work well together. And the focus Naomi had is this, like, seems like somebody who can really be a source of rest and well-being for Ruth, not to micromanage family image. Naomi's first concern is whether or not this Boaz guy will be good for Ruth and her well-being. I've seen parents 
decide whether or not someone was eligible to marry their child before ever even meeting them. They don't care about getting to know them. They don't care about taking time to observe this person's character, whether or not this is good for the well-being of their daughter and their son. But they decided yes or no, simply after hearing one of two facts, the person's social status and the person's financial standing. That alone is enough to decide yes or no. What does that tell you about who our idols are? We're prioritizing family image over the well-being of our children. And that's hurt many families. And if I can be frank, I have seen parents lose the possibility of their child being with somebody who could truly bless their child's well-being because they wanted to protect family image. That's sad. As God's people, we're called to find our final authority, not on selfish individualistic emotions as primary, nor on the social standing of our family image as primary. Again, I'm not saying you can't make decisions based on individual emotions. Love and chemistry is very important. I'm not saying you can't make decisions based on your families and the dynamics that's in it. That's very loving and caring for you to do that. That's okay. But neither of those things should be the primary voice, the primary authority in how God's children make decisions, even when it comes to our romantic life. What is then? What is our ultimate authority? Well, the well-being of others. We are called to selflessly prioritize the well-being of others, pray for it, act upon it, even in the romantic part of your life. Now, there's something in the sermon I haven't really defined yet, and I see some of us with frowning eyes, and you should have that. You should feel a bit of an unrest, a bit of unclarity, even a bit of dissatisfaction to what I've said so far, because I haven't defined one really important thing. Who gets to decide the definition of well-being? What is that? Who, who decides on that? How, how do I know what is best for somebody else? Because if I order my life around somebody else's well-being and their well-being is ultimately defined by what they want, by their definition of what they think is best for them, I'm going to end up being a yes man. Now I'm going to end up being walked all over by people. Now I'm going to end up being a people pleaser. That doesn't make me selfless. That makes me a people pleaser. Oh, what you think is best for you is great. I'll just do that. I'll sacrifice everything, even my romantic life for that. No, that's not what it's calling. But the other option is I become the final authority about what's best for people. Does that make sense? I'm not going to let what they think is best for them be final authority. I'm going to let what I think is best for them be final authority. And you know what ends up being happening? I end up being their God. This doesn't make me selfless either. It makes me a pompous micromanager of other people. So you might be listening to me right now and you're saying, okay, it's great and all that God calls me to, to prioritize other people's well-being as my authority and how I should make decisions in life. But how we define well-being is very important, doesn't it? Because if we define well-being based on what they think is best for them, we're going to end up becoming yes-man. If we define well-being by what we think is best for them, then we're going to end up being pompous micromanagers and gods of them. Okay? So in this note, in this last point, let's, let's, let's move here. Point number three, how God makes us selfless people. The only way we can truly become selfless and prioritize other people's well-being like Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz did in our passage and not end up as people pleasers or pompous micromanagers is by letting God define what well-being means. 
Let God and His Word define what well-being means. Because if you let the other person define it, we'll end up being people pleasers. We'll just be saying yes all the time to what other people emotionally, individualistically want at the time. And if you think about it, you know what that's going to cause us to fall into? Emotional individualism. If we let them decide what's best, if we let their voice become ultimate authority, we're just going to keep saying yes. Whatever you emotionally want at this time, is, that's good. That's, that's emotional individualism all over again. But if we make our voice the final authority of what other, another person's well-being means, what we're going to do is we're going to end up being pompous micromanagers because we're going to think that our word is authority. And guess what that'll do to them? We'll end up burdening them with the same weight that is seen in harsh familialism. You see? It's a cycle all over again. If I'm the final authority of the voice, I'm going to be harshly familiaristic with them. Do what I say. I'm the definer of well-being. Or, yes, to whatever you say, because you're the definer of well-being. You see, if our voice or other people's voice become the ultimate definition of what well-being means, we'll either end up being people-pleasers, which stems out of the philosophy of emotional individualism, or we'll be pompous micromanagers that will cause upon people the burden of harsh familialism. What is our only option? Not to let others or ourselves define what it means to be well, but let God define what it means to be well. And then pray according to that, and then act according to it. You see? That's going to protect you from being a people pleaser. It's going to protect you from being a pompous micromanager. It's his word. What is best for this person? How do I know by, his, by the Bible, by God's word, what is best for this person? Pray for it. Act upon it. Naomi was God-centered. She planned verses 1 to 5 based on a prayer she prayed for in chapter 1. Ruth was God-centered. When Ruth said in verse 9, spread your wings over your servant. Have you heard those words before? Go back to chapter 2, verses 12. This is the prayer Boaz prayed to the Lord. The Lord repay you for what you've done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is praying. Ruth is telling Boaz, remember that prayer you said in chapter 2? Do it to me. Be my redeemer. Be Naomi's redeemer. Boaz was also God-saturated. You see him praying in, chapter, in verse 10 in chapter 3. And also, his definition, definition of what's best for, for Ruth isn't based on his own understanding. He, he obeyed God's law of gleaning. Remember the gleaning law? God defined this as best. He, uh, he went according to that. And the Redeemer, the Redeemer thing is God, uh, of the law of God instituted in Leviticus chapter 19. Yes, I'll be a Redeemer based on God's word. This is, this is good. He didn't just define well-being based on his own creativity. He looked upon God's laws and he said, this is good. This is well. I will do it. You see, you have to let God define what well-being is for each other, not independent from God, both in, both in motive and in definition. Very God-centered. Quick side note. I think this is important. This is why I highly doubt uh, uh, the author meant to portray Ruth and Boaz as having premarital relations here. Because Boaz and Ruth were, when Ruth was so God-centered in all their conversations, were so selfless in all their conversations, they both are presented as protagonists, as heroes in the story, not as antagonists. They've had upright character, integrity to the Lord the whole time. Boaz, the ideal Israelite redeemer, obeyed the gleaning laws. In Leviticus chapter 25, obeyed the Redeemer law in Leviticus chapter 19. How much more is he going to uh, obey the very clear law in the seventh commandment? The two, the verb remain tonight in verse 13 is, is lun in Hebrew, and it's not sikap, 
which, which refers to a sensual relationship. It's, it's more like saying, Ruth, lodge here tonight, rather than, Ruth, sleep here tonight. It, 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 he, the author chooses the word that is less sensual. Three, the timing, it's on midnight. Who would let a girl go home on her own in midnight? Not safe. And four, it's clear what he said uh, in verse 14. Uh, the author said, she lay at his feet. Again, just feet, nothing else. So it seems that everybody in this book, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz, were all protagonists, were all heroes, profoundly selfless people, prioritized the well-being of others through their prayers and their actions, even when it comes to their romantic life, all the while being God-centered about it and defying well-being based on God's word. Here, Christian, is the model of life you are called to follow. What is it again? Let's summarize, and I'll, I'll... Slow down here if there's any notes. One, step one. Define well-being not based on your own creative definitions, but on God's word as found in his scripture. That's what well-being is. Two, after you've defined well-being based on God's word, focus your prayers on the well-being of others, not just on yourself. Three, go and do what you just prayed for. Do it. Be ambitious about accomplishing it. Be strategic. Be intentional. Four, do this in every part of your life, even in your romantic life. Because the level of selflessness and faithfulness you show in this area of life is likely the most accurate picture of the true level of selflessness and faithfulness in the other areas of your life. Now let's end here. And to be honest, this is a crazy level of selflessness. It's, it's, it's foreign to me. Where can I get the power to exemplify this absurd level of selflessness? How do I pattern my prayers and actions so selflessly in our, in our love lives even, for other people's well-being as the Lord has defined it? Well, I must remember that this love story in Ruth chapter 3 is not primarily a love story about Boaz and Ruth, is it? Remember, it's about God's redemptive story, of moving his redemptive story forward. Boaz and Ruth, romantically involved, getting married, is, is, is about Jesus Christ. Therefore, the love story in Ruth chapter 3 is really a love story between God and his people. Remember, Boaz, the ideal redeemer, receives and marries Ruth, the helpless foreigner, who then became the ancestor of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ if not our ideal redeemer? Who is Ruth if not us, helpless foreigners in need of a redeemer? Jesus is our ideal husband, as he's described in the New Testament. Without a care of his own individualistic comforts, without a care of his social image or status, he selflessly climbed on a cross and died for you and redeemed you from your sin and your shame. Jesus, who, by the way, selflessly prayed for you and your salvation in John chapter 17, didn't merely pray for it. He went about and accomplished it. He intentionally followed up that selfless prayer with action when he climbed on a cross and died for you, for your well-being, where he spread his wings over you, protected you as his hands were stretched from end to end, nailed on a cross. Friends, we can't find the power to take our eyes off ourselves by internally mustering up the strength to be selfless. 
We do that by allowing our eyes and our loves and our attention to be captured by something out there that's more beautiful than us. To see someone who selflessly, without a care of his own individualistic comforts, without a care for social status, prayed for our well-being, then followed that prayer up with action, even unto a cross. If we muster up the strength from inside ourselves to be selfless, then our selflessness would have come from within ourselves, which doesn't make us selfless at all, but prideful. You see, it's impossible. The only way we can truly be selfless is if something so beautiful from the outside, external of us, captures our selfish souls and captivates it. Who is that? Your true Redeemer, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Receive this gospel. It's the only way of salvation, Scripture says. Grow in it. Our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who through his selfless prayers and action, prioritized you, redeemed you, made you well, as the Father has defined it. And now live out that same gospel to a world that desperately needs it. Pray for others' well-being. Go do it under the banner of his blood. Let's pray. Father, what a challenging text, but what an amazing gospel we find in it that you, through your sovereign control of all things, orchestrated the romantic relationship between Ruth and Boaz that is marked and drenched with selflessness and saturated in your laws and in your word. And by doing so, bringing about a Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, who prayed for us, but not only did that, but went ahead and accomplished that prayer on the cross. Let us now... Live out that gospel to the world that needs it. Let us pray for the well-being of others. Prioritize them. And then follow up those prayers with action that this world may see the gospel and the power of Jesus who have loved us and prioritized us in his prayers and in his actions. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.